From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In a recent episode with researcher Lotfi Marabet, we learned of several innovative tools and imaging techniques being developed to help identify a fatal genetic disorder in young boys called cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy. With funding from a Harvard Catalyst pilot grant, Dr. Marabet joined forces with Dr. Florian Eichler to improve current cognitive detection tools. On this episode of Think Research, we speak with Dr. Eichler about his work studying gene therapy and early detection of cerebral ALD. Dr. Florian Eichler is an associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and director of the Leukodystrophy Clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Eichler, thank you for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. You're part of a team that received a vision pilot grant from Harvard Catalyst, and you have been working with Lotfi Maribet on that grant, um, looking at diagnostics for ALD, or adrenoleukodystrophy. Can you describe what ALD is and who it affects? Sure. Uh, X-linked adrenoleukodystrophy is a single gene disorder that um, affects um, boys... Um, predominantly between the ages of 4 and 10, with its most devastating manifestation, which is that of childhood cerebral ALD. Um, Childhood cerebral ALD is a progressive demyelinating disease of the brain. Boys are initially born normally, develop early milestones, and then between the ages of four and 10, they um, develop some attention problems, maybe some personality changes, and then they rapidly progress to losing the ability to walk and talk, and are often either in a vegetative state or dead within one to two years. So it's a um, childhood cerebral form of ALD is a truly devastating genetic disorder that strikes boys really in the prime of their life. And the goal of your pilot grant, the goal of this pilot grant is to improve early detection. And you talked about the disease um, affecting mainly, is it exclusively boys? Yes, it's an X-linked disorder, Mm -hmm. and with um, boys only having one X chromosome, they cannot compensate with a second X uh, um, for the mutant uh, gene. And so at the time they're born, uh, they already have very distinct fatty acid abnormality that you can pick up on newborn screening. Uh, This is a very long chain fatty acid that can be detected at newborn screening. But it doesn't tell you 
uh, whether and when these boys will be affected with the brain disorder. Mm-hmm. And in order to know that, we have to do serial brain MRIs uh, every six months to a year. And, um, and once we see on imaging uh, the, a lesion progressing, often that lesion moves very fast. And uh, the kinds of tools that uh, Dr. Marabed is developing is helping us um, find the earliest signs and symptoms as uh, this white matter of the brain is being affected. Mm-hmm. So you said that detecting the change from X-linked ALD to cerebral ALD is what's crucial. The research that you're focused on, that you're working on, is detecting these changes earlier to be able to intervene. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about the current state of treatment and um, kind of why that, you know, what the problem is with only being able to do brain scans and only having that um, interval of six months to a year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those are very good questions. Let me first say that the area of the brain white matter that is usually affected in these boys is the posterior, the back portion of the brain white matter. It is exactly that white matter that is connecting to the visual cortex, which is at the back of the brain. And for that reason, um, we think that these early personality changes, these early attention problems in boys are actually cognitive visual problems, that these are difficulties in processing visual information in the brain. And our tools as neurologists are rather crude in finding uh, or detecting this kind of cognitive visual impairment. But Dr. Marabet is, uh, has tools that are far more sophisticated and, and granular and have the ability to really measure um, processing as opposed to us neurologists who are often just looking at um, the attentional aspects and how quickly a patient is able to follow simple commands or do certain tasks. But we certainly don't have the kinds of tools that Dr. Marabit is is developing and and applying here. Mm -hmm. So the current um, um, treatment for this disorder, as as you had asked, and sorry. Actually, before we get to that, I wanted to talk about when you first became interested in studying ALD. Um, It's been a major focus of your work uh, throughout your career, and your mentor was actually one of the pioneers in the treatment of this of this disease. So um, maybe before we get into some of the specifics about standard of care, could you just tell us about how you became interested in studying the disease in the first place? Sure. Yes. No, I was uh, very fortunate to um, uh, have Hugo Moser uh, uh, at Johns Hopkins as a mentor uh, for um, my career in neurogenetics. And um, 
Dr. Moser was really a pioneer in the field of leukodystrophies um, in, in large part because of his knowledge of not just neurology, but also biochemistry. Uh, he was the one who discovered uh, the abnormalities in uh, fatty acids. And uh, this happened by an interesting uh, serendipity uh, when in his lab overnight, one of the postdocs left the gas chromatograph on, and then the next morning they discovered the very long chain fatty acids on the gas chromatograph. Long story short, Hugo was beyond being a brilliant diagnostician, also someone who cared deeply about patients and patients' experiences, and um, went on to not only discover this diagnostic assay, but also attempt to uh, lower very long chain fatty acids with a compound that was uh, named Lorenzo's oil. And he did this um, in collaboration with a family that was fighting for the uh, life of their child. Turns out that Lorenzo's oil is able to lower very long chain fatty acids, but it does not actually change the course of the brain disease, sadly. Mm, okay, so tell us a little bit more about about that. You mentioned that the long chain fatty acids are part of this demy demyelination process, and that's what, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that the long chain fatty acids are part of the demyelination process, which strips basically the coating of the nerves and, inter and d disrupts the ability of the brain to send signals to, to the body. Am I getting that right? Or Yeah, it's, uh, it's a complicated process. Yeah, I'm sure. So yeah. you're, you're right. The very long chain fatty acids are a, a, a critical component of the disease. And if you have the gene defect, you have elevations in very long chain fatty acids at birth. Mm -hmm. And that is what has become this really valuable plasma assay to know whether somebody has the gene defect or not. You can, at birth, now measure very long chain fatty acids in blood of newborns, and you know whether they have the gene defect. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it does not predict if you will have brain disease or not. And it turns out that uh, lowering very long chain fatty acids as well does not um, prevent uh, having brain disease. We have learned a few things about when and, and why brain disease um, takes place because of the only modality that has been able to um, halt progression of brain disease, and that is a bone marrow transplantation. So it turns out that these bone marrow cells are vital um, cells that come up from bone marrow to blood and from blood to brain and then act as, uh, as cells that can rescue the demyelination as these cells become microglia and these microglia um, salvage uh, the, the lesion and uh, halt the progression. Hmm. But it comes at a big cost. The boys that undergo bone marrow transplantation they um, have to go through uh, immune suppression 
they get uh, chemotherapy to make space in the bone marrow, but often the cells that they receive are cells from donors and the body uh, has reactions to those donor cells. They have graft versus host disease and engraftment problems that ensue. So it is a very difficult course um, to go through a conventional bone marrow transplantation. And so um, Hugo Moser at Hopkins was uh, hoping to find a better tolerated treatment in this um, Lorenzo's oil. But unfortunately, this did not work um, in, in stopping um, progression of brain disease. What, at the time when I was with Dr. Moser, and he was um, uh, contemplating gene therapy, um, I was able to um, hear about work that French group was doing where they were pursuing a new modality of gene therapy uh, based on the bone marrow transplantation that had been done for uh, a decade or two. Mm. And the simple ingenious step that they uh, undertook was to uh, not take donor cells from someone else, but to take uh, the donor cells from the boys themselves. And these cells could uh, then be taken from the bone marrow, harvested from the peripheral blood, transfected in a dish with a lentiviral vector that now delivered a healthy copy of the gene. The cells were then delivered back to the boys after a little bit of uh, um, myeloblation, meaning a little bit of chemotherapy that was making room in the bone marrow. And then the boys uh, um, received the cells and um, were um, followed by MRI. And the great thing about this is that we didn't see any engraftment problems. We didn't see any graft-versus-host uh, disease. And if we did this early enough, we could uh, really keep these boys in a, an asymptomatic state. And many of these boys now are uh, returning back to me, reporting back from soccer camp or, uh, and leading uh, fulfilled lives. Um, that is, uh, has made my clinic and my work really meaningful. So that gene therapy that you're talking about, that's, this is the standard of care now, and this is helping halt the progression of ALD and preventing boys from developing this cerebral ALD, from developing the brain disease that is really devastating. Could you just tell us a little bit about the prognosis for children these days compared to maybe when you started this work? and um, before the advancement of gene therapy? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I will preface this by saying that um, gene therapy is not yet the standard of care. It is, I, I think, um, at least one of two modalities that can um, halt progressive cerebral ALD. Um, the two being either conventional bone marrow transplant or ex vivo gene therapy. Both of them are based on a cell-based um, rescue that um, relies on good engraftment of the cells 
and early treatment of cerebral ALD. So um, it, what our experience has been both with conventional bone marrow transplantation as well as with ex vivo gene therapy, if you treat these boys too late, meaning when the disease is already uh, advancing rapidly and first symptoms have occurred, then often the disease does not respond and the boys do not tolerate uh, the treatment as well. So it has become really critical to um, detect these boys uh, early, not only by newborn screening, but also by very careful early detection of this conversion to cerebral ALD. Speaking to my clinic, when I first started this work uh, 15 years ago, most of the boys at the time were detected in a, in a symptomatic state, meaning after they had often had first symptoms and gone through a diagnostic odyssey, and, and by the time they came to my clinic, they were often wheelchair-bound and at death's door. So it was really um, a quite excruciating uh, experience to um, meet these families and feel quite helpless. Um, but with time, as we have improved not only family screening, but now also implemented newborn screening, and uh, come up with uh, better and safer treatments through gene therapy, um, it's been a, a transformative experience. So the, the boys often come, are monitored very carefully, at the, and then once they have and early lesions that appear, we are able to treat them safely and effectively and, and they lead normal lives and, and many of them go on to um, you know, continue in school and first boys are only six, seven years out, but I'm expecting great things from them. Well, that's great. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it must be very gratifying to go from what you describe as an excruciating experience early on of seeing these families with children that were not going to live very much longer after you met them to now being able to see patients flourishing and continuing to live their lives, you know, five, six, seven years out and continuing. There's, there's no question about it. One of the things my mentor uh, taught me uh, was that the patient's plight and the patient's suffering is central to our activities as doctors and our um, failure as well as our success are contingent on that. And he told me, you know, um, as he had been taught, uh, if something works, keep on doing it. And if something doesn't work, try something new. And um, that's exactly what I did. So I, I feel very fortunate to have been part of this uh, gene therapy effort. And this clearly required a multidisciplinary team of uh, various different exp experts working together and, um, and not just academic um, experts, but also uh, industry and first and foremost patients and families that were willing to inform us on what was most meaningful to them and also willing to engage with a new experimental treatment. So 
we um, we're very lucky to have had their their um, trust and uh, in in our work so that we could proceed. So yeah. I don't think you mentioned that maybe we didn't really touch on it too much, but the it sounds like from what you're saying that you were part of the development of the of gene therapy. So maybe you could just briefly talk about that, like how, what role you played in developing this therapy? Sure. Yeah, so um, when we first embarked on the attempt at using not only bone marrow transplantation, but eventually ex vivo gene therapy for a, a brain disease, it was not something that most neurologists um, thought could work because the hematopoietic system, the um, blood system, uh, was considered a separate system from that of the brain and nervous system. Um, and there was a lot of skepticism that cells could travel from the bone marrow to the blood and from blood to brain. And so uh, in order for us to really um, make this happen, I had to uh, have very good collaborators in, um, in the field of gene therapy and hematology and oncology. And David Williams at Boston Children's made a, a big contribution to the field of, of, of gene therapy through his knowledge of retroviruses and uh, lentiviral uh, gene therapy and um, working um, across two disciplines from uh, hematology to neurology really made this interdisciplinary uh, treatment come about. So my role was essentially um, defining the um, progression of the neurological disorder, defining the way the brain is affected, what, um, how the um, blood-brain barrier in this disease uh, opens up and how quickly the lesion progresses, what kinds of outcomes, what kinds of neurological outcomes to measure. But it was really um, David Williams who provided the knowledge on vector design and how to develop here um, a drug product in collaboration with industry. Hmm. And the, the inspiration for that, was it the fact that the bone marrow transplants were, were just so difficult on patients? Well, I think the first inspiration for this was that we knew that bone marrow transplantation could work. Um, and that in of itself was, um, was a huge um, step forward. Although gene therapy is really a small incremental step from a conventional bone marrow transplantation, because we simply said instead of taking cells from a donor who is not the boy himself, let us take uh, autologous cells, cells from the boys themselves. 
but the approach yeah. of, of ex vivo gene therapy and conventional bone marrow transplantation was the same, which is that bone marrow cells appear to have the ability to um, halt progression of this disease. And presumably, this is by um, virtue of the fact that these bone marrow cells can become microglia-like cells. And the microglia in the brain are a, a really critical part of the brain network and are really the first responders to any injury in the brain. And uh, years ago, after I worked with Dr. Moser, I was able to show that it is these brain microglia in cerebral ALD that are the first cells to die in, in, on, on, auto, on autopsy tissue of boys with cerebral ALD. And this was, for me, a real eye-opener because I, I, I compare this with other demyelinating diseases such as multiple sclerosis, and uh, it was distinctly different. There was a zone of microglial cell death that surrounded every demyelinating lesion in, in the boys who had succumbed to ALD. And it was almost like they, this, these lesions were trying to tell me something. And, and, and the message was that mm. the, this is the critical cell type that needs to be salvaged. And luckily for us, this can be salvaged through, uh, through bone marrow cells that, uh, that can develop from, um, uh, from bone marrow cells to monocytes and from monocytes to microglia. Wow, that's great. Interesting. And around what year was this that you started this project? 2007, 2008. Uh, it was first in really an idea, and then, and then in 2010, there were really uh, uh, collaborations coming about um, that were um, more concrete. And uh, I think the Boston community was a perfect place to um, launch this because of the close uh, proximity of not only different specialists uh, in hematology, oncology, gene therapy, and neurology, but also industry. So this reading um, allowed us to move forward uh, very quickly. And so now you're, um, this project that you're working on with Dr. Maribet is seeking to improve early detection. Um, and you are trying to push forward into even better outcomes. And I was wondering, you know, we just talked about some of the recent work, recent past, where do you see the future of diagnosis and treatment for this disease? So I, I think, Right now, we're largely acting on early um, lesion detection on MRI. The big conundrum we face is that we don't know what the neurological manifestation of that early lesion truly is. We, 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 think we, we speak of attention problems, personality changes, but it is a rather um, fuzzy beginning uh, uh, to a disease that is on imaging so well circumscribed. And 
the work with Dr. Maribet is really helping us become much more um, accurate and rigorous in our uh, clinical tools. So instead of just saying there are some attention problems or there are some personality changes, we want to be able to measure the kind of cognitive visual processing that is becoming impaired in boys with cerebral ALD. And if we can measure this and measure it early, then I think we will be able to uh, not just uh, improve uh, in terms of the timing of administering gene therapy, but also understand how can we make this treatment even more effective? How can we preserve vital function for these boys who are at this uh, age of their life uh, taking in the entire visual world, trying to, to learn, to study, to read, to do many things that will put them in a position uh, for uh, uh, them leading a fulfilled uh, life. Well, Dr. Eichler, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you, Brendan. Yes, it was a pleasure on my side as well. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.